0: Every three months or so, we welcome Peterson Toscano of Citizens Climate Radio as guest host for Spirit in Action, and today is the big day. He has some blockbuster glimpses into the multidimensional world of climate change. In particular, Peterson is sharpening his focus on an aspect of global warming that gets too little attention because we have been too slow and completely inadequate at stopping the rise in global temperatures. There is now only a tiny chance that we'll limit the global temperature rise to 2 degrees Celsius, so we have to seriously explore strategies for mitigating the damage and adapting to the warmer climate, and Peterson does that with his guests in today's show. And Peterson does much more. In line with his search for motivation and understanding around climate change that speaks to the widest range of citizens, he speaks also to a professor about the overlap of Latino and Republican values in voting, envisaging climate change as bipartisan work. All this and more with Peterson Toscano's enthusiastic, compelling, and empathetic approach to world-healing work.
1: Over to you now, Peterson. Thank you, Mark, and thank you for listening. I am coming to you from Pretoria, South Africa, where the jacarandas are in bloom, and it's November, so we're beginning to experience the first of the summer rains. On today's show, you're going to hear stories that are widely underreported, stories about climate action figures and solutions that I hope will cheer you. You will meet Hari Katachalam, a gay Hindu-American and public health expert, he has a special concern for lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and non-binary youth who are affected by extreme weather. Krista Heiser helps crack open our imaginations with the ultimate Clive book club. And Kathy Boffman-McLeod from the Adrian Arsch Rockefeller Foundation Resilience Center shares strategies for addressing extreme heat. She also reveals how insurance is being used to help protect lives in a climate-changed world. But first, let's go to the theater. To be in a space with live theater, something magical happens. And this is why I love climate change theater action. It places well scripted short plays about climate change into the hands of everyday people who may have never done theater in their lives. With a script and a role, the players dive into new worlds. Chantal Bilodeau, a Canadian-born playwright, along with other colleagues, developed the idea.
2: In 2015, four of us came together and created Climate Change Theatre Action. We felt like there needed to be more stories told about the climate. The concept of a a theatre action already existed. It was something that Caredat founded some years ago. Asking playwrights to write short script around a social issue and then mobilizing the theater community to present these scripts in different location. So we took that concept in 2015. We adapted it in a little bit. And then since then it has grown. We commissioned 50 playwrights from around the world to make sure that all the inhabited continents are represented. And we asked them to write a five minute play based on a prompt. That deals with an aspect of the climate crisis. So for example, in 2021, the prompt is envisioning a global green new deal. So we end up with this collection of 50 plays. We make the collection available to anyone who wants to organize an event in their community within a a time window that is in the fall. So again, in 2021, it's between September 19th and December 18th. And anybody can present one or several of the plays. It's up to them. They can add more material on their own if they want to. This presentation can be just about anything. It can be as small as a reading, you know, in somebody's backyard with a few friends, or as big as a fully produced show on a stage somewhere.
1: In a climate movement that often struggles to bring in a diversity of voices, Climate Change Theatre Action includes a wide array of playwrights from around the world.
2: Canada, the US, the UK, France, Brazil, somebody from Korea, someone from Hong Kong, a few from India. It's pretty much all over. And of course, someone from South Africa, which is you.
1: Hosting a climate change theater action event can be such an excellent way to open up a discussion about climate change while bringing people together in the community. But you may be wondering yeah, but what does it cost?
2: It can be zero dollars, and a lot of people do it with no money. You can just pick up a script and read it. Or you, if you have funding, or if you have a budget, then you can put something, create something bigger. But it's really up to every individual. The writers are commissioned to write the plays, and the commission takes into consideration the fact that they've agreed that these plays would be presented with no ad- additional fees being charged during this time window.
1: But what if you are a group of people with absolutely no experience in theater or the arts?
2: That's a great question. Sometimes people who are not in the arts or not in the theater will just pick up a play and read it as part of a meeting. For example, we have faith communities who have participated or environmental organization, and they pick up a play and they read it to each other. Or if they have a meeting... You know, with a large group of people, they might use one of the plays as an opener to the meeting or to illustrate something they're talking about. It doesn't have to be performative in the way that, you know, you, you need to have experts put on the play. It can be just anybody reading it as part of a bigger event. To find out more, people can go to our website, which is climatechangetheateraction.com and theater is spelled R E, not E R. On the website, it lists what is expected from collaborators. It's it's very simple. Essentially, they have to present at least one play from the collection in between the dates that I mentioned, September and December 2021. And then they email us. We send them the plays. They can read through the collection, and then they choose something they like. Once they've made their choice, we then just ask them for information about what they're going to do so we can keep track and help publicize it. What makes
1: this year's Climate Change Theatre Action especially meaningful is that most of the plays consider what success will look like. They envision a livable world of possibilities. For climate advocates, it is essential to hold on to these types of visions. They reveal what we are fighting for. Chantal put me in touch with another Climate Change Theatre Action playwright based in Cambridge, England.
3: Zoe Svensson. I say I make theatre, although actually over over time that sort of the definition of what theatre might be kind of bleeds out into video installations, multiple conversations. I make work that's very much about participation, but not just for the sake of it, but more to set up conversations and open up different kinds of spaces for experiencing the aesthetic. I didn't become interested in in climate crisis, particularly because of a background in environmentalism or activism around that kind of thing, or or, um, even a personal sort of deep engagement with nature. I mean, that's actually changed. In fact, it took the pandemic in a way, like I think for many people to put that to change for me. But I am really interested in like, why as humans, we screw our lives up so badly. So when when I found out about what climate change was doing, and particularly about the two degree tipping point, I was just like, what? Like, are we crazy? <laughs> we just you know, take our way of life. I mean, when I say our, I mean, you know, mine in the Western culture.
1: Zoe's short play, Love Out of Ruins, is unique among the 50 plays in that she invites the players to individualize the script.
3: It's a kind of life project called Love Letters to a Livable Future. Each of these pieces of work has kind of been thinking about how we imagine the world that we could be in if these extraordinary brilliant ideas that are out there for transformation actually really happened because often you hear about these amazing visions and it sounds great but you can't quite imagine yourself in it and we were thinking well what would it be actually like if we, if we lived in cultures of planetary flourishing when we come to imagining possibilities and imagining alternative futures.
1: I recently met with a group of young climate advocates online I invited them to consider a world without fossil fuel pollution. Some of them confessed they couldn't do it. They think about the future, and it all looks horrific in their minds.
3: We're trained by disaster movies to see that sort of apocalyptic scenario. And of course, it's not to downplay the fact that actually, in many parts of the world, the climate apocalypse is already upon us. But that actually, you can also see all the extraordinary things that people are doing to change and mitigate and do that. And we thought, well, if we stay in that space, if we try and concentrate on that, then maybe we can we can add to the sort of attention that people pay to that. and then once that starts to become more part of people's sense of that's what everyday life is, the more possible things become. And you can kind of build on that in a networked you know very small scale networked way the activation of the imagination makes things seem possible and then people do stuff and it doesn't seem like such a big deal. There's um, brilliant work done in family therapy around the idea of active hope and the notion that hope is a verb. And I love this image that it's not that you have hope because that sort of can lead to despair when you look at the reality of what's around us. Um, but instead, hope is what happens when you do have a series of small actions that you can engage with that start to make a change or a difference or can network into changes that are being made more broadly. And that sort of sense of it being an active process rather than a a thing, rather than a sort of experience. feels really powerful.
1: To help us engage our imagination, Zoe has created a play where we get to decide many of the details in it. Think of it as a much more sophisticated version of Mad Libs, with the aim to create a vision of the future worth pursuing.
3: So this is potentially a multiple voice piece, but it could be a monologue. And then a lot of it has to be decided by the people who are involved in it.
1: The play begins in the present time and moves forward. You get to decide the details that shape the character's world.
3: You were born this year. You live in, brackets, name a place you know. It is late, name a season. It is early morning. It is now, brackets, warmer, colder, wetter, drier, or this time of year than it used to be.
1: Then the play jumps slightly ahead in time.
3: You are eight years old and you're running down your street, slaloming between bikes and elders sitting out and newly planted brackets, name a type of tree resilient to the future, consider its purpose, fruit, shade, close brackets. You're late for school, which today is at the brackets, name an unlikely but brilliant site for teaching kids by example, rather than in a classroom. For example, in a library for literacy or even a publishing house, in a bank for maths or a grocery store, a fashion house for drawing, a farm for a biology or ecology, anywhere that's supported by teachers, workers might share their specialism in an educationally relevant way. Close brackets. So that would be, you know, that's a long description, but in, in, the, in the performance, it would probably be a few words, you know, at the bank where you're learning about maths, for example. You're 22 years old and preoccupied. You turn the corner onto, name a relevant residential street. So that's when it sort of gets localized. And I won't carry on, but you can see that it it jumps from age to age across somebody's life and then invites the people making it to imagine very specific elements within that that make it their own.
1: This sort of structure helps us so much in disciplining our minds to actively consider a livable world. You can read Love Out of Ruins by Zoe Svensson at one of your events. In fact, having a group of friends, students, or climate advocates sit and fill in the lines can be a mind-and-heart-expanding activity. Then you can share the results at a climate change theater action event you host and read some of the plays by the 49 other playwrights from around the world. Learn more about how you can get your hands on these plays and host your own event, visit com. That's com. Let's talk about the most dangerous climate change impact that not enough people are talking about. Extreme heat.
4: It's not as dramatic as other climate catastrophes. So you have the drama and the visual nature of a hurricane rips the roof off of a house. Cars are floating down places that used to be roadways and now they're rivers. Fires are visually engaging and scary, but still dynamic and they grab you. Heat is quiet, invisible.
1: That's Kathy Boffman-McLeod, she is the director of the Adrian Arshd Rockefeller Foundation Resilience Center.
4: And so there are some challenges to helping to convey the dangers of heat, and it is killing more Americans, and by several citations, several places, more people globally than any other climate hazard.
1: In a moment, Kathy will tell us about the ways the insurance industry is addressing extreme heat and other impacts of climate change. But first let's talk about those dangers of extreme heat and the solutions that are making a big difference.
4: We estimate 8,800 deaths in the U.S. from heat in 2020, and there were 430 deaths from hurricanes. That's 20 times more deaths from heat than hurricanes, and yet hurricanes have a name. They have a season. (laughs) They have an industry around them trying to predict and quantify the risk, you know, with the insurance industry that is such a big part of that. Same for flood, same for fire. It's little understood, it's pernicious, and it's deadly. It's the the grim reaper that no one can see. We just put out a report on the economic and social impacts of heat to the U.S. economy. It shows how heat exacerbates the underlying conditions and status of Minorities, black and brown communities, low-income communities who are already suffering from discrimination and racist housing practices and low investment in their communities, a decrease or sometimes no tree cover. And so there's a, a big relationship between the access to health, access to good food, air pollution, the respiratory diseases that come from that and other underlying conditions like heart disease and diabetes that make you vulnerable. Seniors are extremely vulnerable to heat, it sneaks up. You know, heat is both a, a stress, you know, slow increase in temperature that we're all feeling and then the shock of a heat wave like you saw in British Columbia and you know, Portland and Washington this year, but also a big one in Paris in 2003 and 2017 that took thousands of lives. Homeless populations have been shown to be extremely vulnerable to heat, particularly in the South and the Southwest. And we so often think about protecting homeless people from the cold. I think it's really important that we pay close attention to workers who are exposed to heat, be that in a warehouse or out in a farm field. Both the employer and the worker have to be vigilant about understanding when they start to feel sick from heat.
1: She also points to effective strategies and techniques that protect workers and the general public.
4: They exist, you know, policies that protect workers, cooler vests, changed hours, trainings for people to recognize heat illness, more workers on shorter shifts, air-conditioned break areas, all that sort of stuff. You know, nature is a huge solution and very cost-effective for reducing temperatures. Places that are leafy and have a lot of tree cover are sometimes 25 degrees Fahrenheit cooler than places with no trees. We focus a lot on the passive cooling techniques, open spaces, water features, tree canopy, all of that. And then also smarter surfaces, lighter surfaced roofs and all sorts of features that make our cities less (laughs) roasting for us to live and work in. Early warning systems and awareness are so important. Appointing chief heat officers, as we've seen in Miami, and in Athens and soon to be in Freetown, you know, it makes a point of contact at the top of government thinking about every day how to protect the most vulnerable from heat and how to bring investment in cooling strategies, how to create better early warning systems to save lives. We see some really interesting features in Paris of using a water feature in a community that combines the, the cooling nature of the water with the airflow, and it brings the temperature down combined with some trees. Uh, so there are some really micro solutions for a neighborhood or for, you know, for a little pocket park, and that that can be really effective. We believe that naming and categorizing heat events will help bring that, that retail awareness. You know, the the media frenzy, the hashtag for its name, and get people preparing and knowing, you know, if this is a heat wave, Peterson and it's a category three, you know, boy, that means that my grandmother, I need to check on her and I need to make sure that my pets are inside and I need to drink lots of water. I need to be watching for signs of heat illness. I need to close the shades, you know, all the things that you do to try to stay cool. we can invest in strategies and interventions that help us prepare and withstand and recover from the shocks and stresses of climate change. We have the tools, we have the policy, we have the capital, we have the know-how. We can do this. Little focus has been put on this and 94% of climate finance goes to climate mitigation and 6% is going to adaptation.
1: One of the most surprising solutions Kathy shared taps into the geeky, wonky side of me.
4: I love insurance for solving climate change. Who doesn't love insurance when it can solve one of our biggest challenges? And so many people, their eyes roll back when you talk about insurance, but it is a huge tool. You know, we don't just need physical resilience to heat and fire and flood and hurricanes. We need financial resilience. And insurance plays a key role in that for individuals, you know, at a micro level, at a, you know, a mezzanine level for communities and neighborhoods and, you know, small towns. And then at a big macro level, a country level. Think of insurance as an approach. You know, so often we have a negative connotation of insurance as profit-seeking entity and someone is paying for something they may never get back, it has a brand problem. (laughs) But when you think of it as an approach for getting in front of things that stress communities financially, it looks different and it's really flexible. And one of those categories of flexibility in the new products is called a parametric. The usual way we are insured for our homes or our our property. When something gets damaged, you assess the amount of damage and you get paid for that. The parametric, meaning buy and measure, is something occurs, um, a wind speed of a certain amount, a temperature and a a humidity level for a certain duration. Those things trigger a payout, and the payout comes very quickly. And one of the things we're experimenting with is a forecast-based trigger. Why wait for the damage to come and then clean up Get the money beforehand so that you can go and find the people who are suffering and at risk or most at risk in advance of this event and help them or move people or whatever there's things that you need to do. You'll get money in front.
1: Using insurance to alter the way we build and live in order to protect us has a long history in the United States and beyond.
4: Think about the fires of Tokyo and San Francisco, you know, at the turn of the 19th century, When they went to rebuild the cities, the insurance company said, no way, we're not gonna insure you, why would we do that? You're gonna rebuild a wooden city in a fire-prone place? No, show me some innovation, show me the way you can reduce the risk. So the fire station was born, the fire hydrant was born, the fire escape was born, and then they were interested in insuring those cities. The same thing is true with seat belts. People were being impaled on these spiky dashboards. No seatbelts. And so they helped with others push for standardizing regulations around seatbelts for safety, and lives lost went down. It's a real tool. Thinking about it, how you incentivize the behavior you want. You know, if you stop smoking, if you lose weight, if you exercise, there are these tiny financial incentives in your insurance, your safe driver. Same can be true. And so, can we incentivize the right sort of building, the right risk reduction measures you can take as a homeowner. So all sorts of these approaches and mechanisms are being tested and scaled. There are some good signs that these have have legs and will come to be standard market products that help people live safer, longer lives.
1: Kathy and the Adrian Arsht Rockefeller Foundation Resilience Center are committed to getting the word out about resiliency. They connect with the public in unexpected ways.
4: We have made a commitment and set a goal of reaching 1 billion people with resilient solutions by 2030. We have an ethos of reaching people where they are. We're also working with the gaming industry and with the creators of Call of Duty and Fortnite to help bring resilient solutions into the places where people are. And 2.8 billion people are playing video games every day. And half are women. We believe that we can bring knowledge and actionable guidance and tools to people by not changing a thing, by just playing new games. That billion-person goal is a real big part of our focus of measurably reaching people with these solutions of all kinds, you know, insurance included. Please look at our website to learn more, which is 1billionresilient.org, and 1 billion is spelled out all lowercase.
1: That website again is 1billionresilient.org. I have links in our show notes with excellent articles written by Kathy Boffman-McLeod and more. Just visit our blog at citizensclimatelobby.org and look for episode 65. Stay tuned for the ultimate Cli-Fi book club and the story of a gay Hindu American who brings his whole self into climate justice work.
0: I'll break in here for a moment to Spirit in Action guest Peterson Toscano to give a shout out to the many community radio stations that carry Spirit in Action and Song of the Soul and many other excellent locally inspired and focused shows, news, and much more of, by, and for the people. Remember to support these stations and their work with your hands and wallet. Start there, but don't forget to visit our website, northernspiritradio.org. On our site, we have links to all our guests of the past 16 and a half years, which includes, of course, links to Peterson, to Citizens Climate Radio, and to guests that he is sharing for today's Spirit in Action. Remember to post comments on the northernspiritradio.org website, and this means you, Whether you are listening to the program via podcast or if you're listening via KCEI near Taos, New Mexico, on KPSQ in Fayetteville, Arkansas, on WRWK in Midlothian, Virginia, KMUD, Garberville, California, and many, many other stations. Wherever and however you're listening to us, post a comment on our site. And while you're there, consider supporting this full-time work with a donation. But right now. We're headed back to Peterson Toscano of Citizens Climate Radio, today's guest host for Spirit in Action.
1: I want to introduce you to a Hindu American who brings his whole self to the climate change conversation. I met Hari Venkatachalam earlier this year. We were part of a virtual interfaith panel that was sponsored by the Interreligious Ecojustice Network, the Hartford Seminary, and Connecticut Interfaith Power and Light. His approach to climate change is both personal and professional. Hari Venkatachalam connects his faith, work, heritage, and even his sexual orientation to his leadership in a climate-changed world.
5: I'm a Hindu by birth. My family came to the United States in 1980. That's when my father migrated to the United States. In many ways, they very much embraced becoming American. My father still identifies very culturally with his background as Indian, but he's very proud of his nationality as an American. The way he blended these worlds was through his faith. He felt that there is a very genuine American Hindu identity, that one could be Hindu and American. And the way he wanted to apply that is that he would take these values, these cultural norms that he associated with Hinduism that also were linked to the Indian cultural aspect and try to find what would they be like in this new space. So my dad raised me with these values as a Hindu and he says, okay, these are these timeless values that were created in South Asia thousands of years ago. How are you going to apply them every day as an American?
1: Hari has been faithful to his father's teaching and has found beautiful and profound ways to apply these values towards making the world a better place for all.
5: I'm part of an organization called Sadhana Coalition of Progressive Hindus. I'm one of the board members. It's a relatively new organization. It's been only around for about 10, 11 years, which in the grand scheme of a lot of organizations is kind of short. But they've done a lot of great work. There's a lot of various issues that we're working on right now, combating casteism in our communities, Islamophobia in our communities, and also like other issues that we deal with as Americans, you know, LGBTQ plus issues, environmentalism issues. My advocacy is predominantly in working on environmental issues and specifically LGBTQ plus issues, because um, I identify as gay or queer.
1: In addition to the many ways his faith and personal identity inform and influence his service in the world, his profession gives him a keen insight into how climate change impacts all of our lives, especially people living on the margins of society.
5: A large part of what I do, my daily work, is public health work with veterans Specifically, my research focus is PTSD, pain management, traumatic brain injury, and also we do a lot of whole health stuff. How yoga impacts pain management, how Tai Chi impacts PTSD symptom relief. We're very much about like holistic health right now. The way I've always seen it is with climate change, with the destruction of our environment, with pollution... Any of these kind of negative things that are happening in our environment, it's a gradual progression up the scale of who gets affected, right? The people who are in the most stable conditions, economically, socially, politically, they're going to be the last ones to be affected by such changes. And that's why the reaction towards climate change is the way it is, is a lot of people just because of the circumstances of their lives. They don't see the daily effect of pollution or environmental destruction.
1: Hari and I both share a specific concern about a group of young people often others do not realize are disproportionately affected by the impacts of climate change
5: as a gay or queer person, there are certain vulnerabilities that we experience. Gay and queer youth are the most likely to be affected by, by homelessness, for example. In
1: fact, up to 40% of youth living on the streets in the United States and Canada are lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and non-binary. More and more, the term queer, which had been long used as a slur, has been adopted by younger LGBTQ people to describe themselves. These queer youth find conditions in their communities, their schools, and even their homes so hostile, they move to the streets of cities throughout North America. Living on the streets comes with many risks for everyone, especially youth. Queer youth face even greater challenges. Many of them avoid going to shelters because they assume they will receive the same discrimination and hostility they escaped. This is especially true for transgender and gender non-binary young people. This puts them at extra risk during extreme weather events.
5: Let's do like kind of a flow of where that happens. If you're an LGBTQ person, you're more likely to be homeless you're more likely to be homeless, you're more likely to be affected by these deep freezes that are happening throughout the United States due to the polar vortex. Global warming is causing these polar vortexes to migrate further and further south. So then are you more likely as a LGBTQ person to be affected by injury or death due to these deep freezes that might be occurring? The more vulnerable you are, the more likely you're to be impacted by these environmental changes.
1: Extreme weather of all sorts, including storms and flooding, impact everyone in a city, but not equally. Hari Venkatachalam comes to his climate work with a curious mind. As a politically left-leaning person coming to climate work with a global perspective, he seeks to deepen the conversation.
5: Sometimes what we do in left spaces that I I worry about is we create these ideas of good and bad, right? People are good because they're doing environmental work. People are bad because they oppose environmental work. But I think people are a lot more complex than that. Let's look at the context of the Indian subcontinent where majority of the world's Hindus live. If you go to certain parts of South India, there's right now a huge issue of logging in state parks, in forests, in jungles. But when you go and talk to these individuals who are sneaking into these national parks and cutting down trees, they're not doing it to be malicious, right? A lot of times they're doing it because there is a economic need. They need that wood to either fuel what they're doing at home or to sell it to provide food for their family. I would seek that we change the conversation from being, we are doing environmental work, so we're the good guys, to how do we get it that we can empathize with everyone's needs but still accomplish our goals? How can we listen to people who are afraid of what might happen to their company if certain environmental restrictions are put into place. What do we do if somebody comes to us and says, I'm having difficulty building affordable housing in a part of California because there's so many environmental restrictions? How can we still accomplish our goals without just demonizing a group of people, but hearing what they have to say, bringing them to the table and still accomplishing our goals? That's a conversation that that just isn't happening. It's disappointing because when you keep people away from the table, you lose momentum for your goal. There's people who are opposing you. There's people who are gonna be breaks to your mission. And I'm saying, let's open it up. Let's, Let's put all of our feet to the gas pedal, start accomplishing really good work in promoting environmentalism, stopping global warming, but listening to everyone and hearing everyone's needs. talking about right now in terms of pushing people away from the table when it comes to environmentalism conversations. We've often done that the same way when we're talking about COVID-19 this past year. And people react to situations like the COVID-19 pandemic in very different ways. You feel like you're out of control with your life. You sometimes try to take that control back in different ways. And I think a lot of times in the past year, I've seen a lot of people try to take that control back by saying, I don't want to be vaccinated. I don't want to wear masks. I don't want to take certain restrictions. And it's very easy for someone in public health to be so confused by that. I don't want to wear a mask. I'm not going to help my society. I don't want to social distance because I don't want to take care of my neighbors. And it's very easy to demonize people like that. But when you dig deeper, when you look at why are people reacting this way, why are people so averse to taking steps to ensure that we stop this pandemic, you start realizing that humans are very complex beings and they have very, very important needs. The needs to see people, the needs to socialize, the need to be in the presence of others. And sometimes something like social distancing, it's very painful. It's almost like a physical pain for some people. The way we could have reacted to the pandemic could have been with a lot more empathy. And I feel like if we had done that, maybe we would have brought more people on board with a lot of the restrictions that were in place. And maybe if we had done that, we would have slowed the pandemic down a little better. But sadly, what I kept on seeing Not just in social media spaces, but sometimes in very real world spaces, is we just wanted to dismiss people who couldn't deal with the realities of the pandemic. And I think that if we had done a better job of bringing them to the table, trying to figure out, dismantle why they're so averse to these restrictions, I think we could have found a lot more support from those people, and maybe done a lot better with controlling the pandemic.
1: Hari Venkatachalam brings his whole self to the climate conversation, including his faith.
5: People who, when they talk about faith, it's a very visceral and emotional place that they speak from. If we could tap into that and use that as the power to move an environmental movement, to develop green industries. It's just amazing what we could do. And a lot of times I think people are very dismissive of faith because it's often used to fuel not the best of goals, right? That's something that I will freely admit as a religious person, as as a person of faith. People, even in my own faith, sometimes use their faith to fuel movements that aren't the best use of their time. That's not the It's not the best way to act as a human being, but if we could use that same gas pedal and apply it to something that's really good, that's something that's I hate using the word good, but I can't, I'm at a loss of a different word, something that's empowering, something that's that's a catalyst to create a better future. if we could use that faith to do something like that, just imagine I just we would get so many people on our side. Change would happen so quickly because people, when it comes to faith, when it comes to religion, they have such emotion, they have such an investment into that. It's a great tool that just isn't used enough.
1: Hadi shared with me some of the timeless values and teachings his father taught him, teachings he learned as a Hindu. If you are a person of faith or not, I expect you will draw wisdom and insight from what Hadi has learned so far.
5: One of the values that I very much associated with was the concept of Svadharma. Svadharma means the dharma or the responsibility that is associated with you and only you. It's it's not anyone else's dharma, but your own dharma. Every Svadharma, every person's dharma is unique, which means that when you do work like environmentalism, it might mean entirely different things to me as a lay individual, going about doing my job every day versus someone who's a politician, right? Their Svadharma is a little bit different. What they can do, what they can accomplish, what their responsibility is to the environment is very different. I've always taken that concept of Svadharma very seriously. I have been given this path that I need to do certain work. What does that mean for me? Where am I going to apply myself? Where am I going to do that work in terms of environmentalism? Where am I going to do that work in terms of LGBTQ plus issues? And I'm never putting that expectation on someone else. That is my own dharma. That is my svadharma. And I let each person figure out what their own svadharma is. But I think we're all reaching for that same goal. And that's actually what we know in Hinduism as rita, that there is a universal dharma protecting our planet doing good for the world, doing good for others. And each Svadharma is like kind of a river that flows towards that rita, that entire dharma that our world is part of.
1: can learn more about Hari and, and read some of his essays at sadhana.org that is spelled s a d h a n a sadhana.org. now it is time for the art house i'm pleased to announce a new semi-regular feature to our show the ultimate cli-fi book club with krista heiser these will not be traditional reviews of climate fiction Instead, Krista takes a deeper dive and allows her imagination to run wild. In doing so, she creates audio essays that get to the heart of what many climate advocates like me and you are thinking and feeling. Krista also shows us the important role literature plays for humans in a climate-changed world.
6: Hi, I'm Krista Heiser. I'm just an English professor obsessed with climate change. I'm the host of the Ultimate cli Book Club, where we think about how to read and teach and talk about climate-themed literature in order to shift and deepen our conversations about the climate crisis. In this episode, we'll be discussing Blaze Island by Canadian writer Catherine Bush. The 800 scientists and scholars who contributed to the 4,000-page IPCC report told us what we already know in the gut. We're in deep planetary peril. must be addressed with both fast mitigation and long adaptation. This is the deep paradox of climate change. It's already baked in, and yet everything matters. The scientists and scholars who write the IPCC reports, they swim in the water, the acidic and too hot water of the climate crisis all day, every day, probably in their dreams and nightmares too. I've met several IPCC contributors and I've been surprised to find that they're normal people. And guess what? They make time for reading fiction. Think about it. Any solution or climate action is going to begin with a thought like planting trees, or going vegan, or starting a school strike, or flight shame. All actions begin with thought, and fiction stimulates thoughts. This is what I tell myself when I lie in the hammock, obsessively reading cli-fi novels. I read a recent piece in The Economist titled, Geoengineering is Conspicuously Absent from the IPCC Report, and it had this eerie but so true subhead. It that cannot be named. Geoengineering is a touchy issue among scientists and authors of the reports. Some feel it's so ethically complex and potentially dangerous that it shouldn't even be discussed. Others feel that the role of the reports is to neutrally evaluate all solutions and models. Geoengineering is already on the table, and in fact, it's already occurring, like a massive tree planting. At the scale it would take, for example, for a shell to be net zero, or for all air travel to be carbon offset, is really a type of geoengineering, depending on how you define it. We seem to have engineered our way into this problem with concrete and combustion. So can we engineer our way out? Or do we need to go with that notion attributed to Einstein that we can't solve problems using the same kind of thinking we used when we created them? I thought this would be a great question to convene a panel around. But check it out. It's an imaginary panel of imaginary climate scientists that's being held in my mind. Here's who's invited. Dr. Milan Wells, the meteorologist from Blaze Island. Dr. Sandra Birdswell, the climatologist from A Reign of Nightbirds. Ovid Byron, the entomologist from Flight Behavior. Patricia Westerford, a dendrologist from The Overstory. And Franny Lynch, the ornithologist from Migrations. And of course, I'm really hoping the panel will be moderated by Mary Robertson, the director of the Ministry for the Future from the Ministry for the Future by Kim Stanley Robinson. Dr. Milan Wells was the first to get back to me. He was one of the early climate researchers pushing to tell the truth. The truth which is now unequivocal, according to the IPCC. Do you remember ClimateGate? He was one of the scientists threatened back then by climate deniers. And he's been trying to keep a low profile ever since, raising his daughter in the sheltered environment of Blaze Island, Now, the setting in the book is actually a fictionalized version of Fogo Island off the coast of Newfoundland, and the name is intended to evoke both its topology and the climatology theme of the novel. Dr. Wells has been quietly doing small studies on small-scale atmospheric effects of aerosol technologies. He's hoping to draw billionaire interest in using this as a last-ditch effort to slow rising temperatures, to extend life for his teenage daughter and her young friend, Caleb. Now, after all he's been through, and given the controversial nature of his research, he was understandably reticent to appear on my panel, but he suggested I talk with author Catherine Bush instead. I took him up on the suggestion. I found her to be an engaging and fascinating person. In her essay, Writing the Real, which, by the way, has been selected for inclusion in Best Canadian Essays this year, Catherine said, As a writer, I no longer feel capable of making art that fails to acknowledge the climate crisis and the existential condition in which we all live. What she means by the real, of course, is the right now. It's like a feedback loop has finally been established from science to literature and maybe back again. Catherine and I talked about how writers like Amitov Ghosh, Lydia Millet, Dina Metzger, David Abram, they're saying that the modern novel, which used to focus on an individual psyche and this realism of the ordinary, needs to now expand to include an engagement with the real, with the more than human, with climate change. I'll leave you with some more of Catherine's words. She said, addressing the climate in fiction is a demand of realism that is placed on us in terms of how we live now and how we write now. We have to find a way as writers. It doesn't mean that every novel or short story or poem has to address it head-on, or be about the climate crisis. But it has to be part of the real. The world we live in. How we engage with others, human and non-human. And the world does not look the way it did 20 years ago.
1: That was Krista Heiser with the first installment of a new, semi-regular feature called The Ultimate CliFi Book Club. You can see a written version of this essay at her blog, field notes, teaching climate change in higher education. It's available at medium.com. I will have a link in our show notes for you. If you want to suggest a clifi book for Krista, email radio at citizensclimate.org. That's radio at citizensclimate.org. Thank you for joining me today on Spirit in Action. You heard excerpts from Citizens Climate Radio. It's a project of Citizens Climate Education. You could hear our show wherever you get podcasts. Here at Citizens Climate Education, we have a solution that will greatly reduce pollution, which leads to climate change. We believe that putting a price on carbon will make a huge difference, and we want to tell you more about it visit cclusa.org slash price on carbon. That's cclusa.org slash price on carbon. If you have comments or ideas for our show, please feel free to send me an email radio at citizensclimate.org. That's radio at citizensclimate.org. Thanks again for listening. Now, Back to Mark Helpsmeet.
0: Thank you, Peterson. You do such wonderful work tipping the world in a healing direction. We're lucky to have you sitting in for Spirit in Action, and we're even going to do it again next month due to the wealth of great programming you have to share. Keep in mind, folks, that you can, and I think should, avail yourself of many of the other ways Peterson Toscano enriches the world, with his Bubble and Squeak podcast, his play Transfigurations, his LGBTQ-friendly Bible Hour, or way back to one of his first productions, Doing Time in the Homo No Mo Halfway House. There's much more than that, available via petersontoscano.com, And we do have a link on northernspiritradio.org. So visit us, check out The Riches, and we'll see you next week for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. Check out all things Spirit in Action on northernspiritradio.org guests, links, stations, and a place for your feedback, suggestions, and support. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Helpsmeet, and I hope you find deep roots to support you to grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. With every voice, with every song, we will move this
2: world along, and our lives will feel the echo of our